Good evening. I am so glad to have a chance to be with you tonight. It's been quite a while since I've been here, and it's always a treat. So I'm, I feel honored and glad to be in your presence. So I um, want to start uh, with thinking about, and I told the, uh, uh, Ernie asked me for a title, and uh, so I, what the title I've come up with, which describes what I'm prepared to talk about, is Climate Change, Capitalism, and the Buddha Dharma. <laughs> so you're forewarned. <laughs> yeah. So uh, right as we sit here, and you know, all week, there's this been epical event happening in Warsaw the 19th Conference of Parties of Climate Change of the uh, 198 parties, countries coming together to see what can be done, what agreements can be reached, agreements that can be enforced to slow down the uh, accelerating growth of greenhouse gas emissions. And that right on the heels of the last report of the UN's IPCC International hmm, Panel on Climate Change, thank you, which shows that even more serious situation we're in with the uh, dates getting closer by which it'll be out of control and already lucky if we can keep the emissions to uh, not much over uh, 400 parts per million if we can keep the temperature not to exceed 2 degrees Celsius or 3.6 Fahrenheit. And uh, the, uh, today there were a large hundreds of people walked out of the, as you may know, walked out of the meeting. And these were uh, representatives there from the civil society, from Oxfam, Greenpeace, uh, major, major interests. Uh, see, did I list them? Oh, well, I have it here. Friends of Earth, Action Aid, International Trade Union Confederation, 350.org. And the pictures of it show uh, a lot of young people with them. <laughs> and uh, they, why they walked out? Because of the corporate presence. Perhaps you've heard at the very same time there is a big uh, coal conference on um, the coal industry meeting in, in Warsaw. And because the presence of uh, corporations and what they're handing out to the delegates is more obvious than ever before. 
And uh, that may be uh, connected to the fact that also today there was a report showing that what the uh, industrialized nations of the north had promised to give in aid the 500 billion dollars each year that they had promised to give to help the developing countries uh, reduce their emissions and adapt, mitigate the climate change impact. So this now, of course, you're aware, the whole sense of justice between who's causing the climate change and who's suffering from it. It's so heartbreaking and so ironic that uh, those who, whose emissions were to continue to generate and are afraid, fearful of, reluctant to set in um, uh, enforceable limits are not suffering nearly as much as those uh, in the global south. And, of course, we have just seen right on the eve of this meeting what was happening. What is happening in the Philippines? And that these, they were reporting on how this aid had been given. And uh, at the same time, whether we believe them or not, what they said they gave, what they promised to give turns out to be each year one-fifth of the subsidies that they give to fossil fuel companies. Do you get it? So even if they do what they say for helping the uh, developing nations deal with climate change, even if they do do that, it is one-fifth or 20% of the subsidies that they're paying to the fossil fuel companies. So maybe that was part of the uh, anger and fed-upness that led them to uh, walk out today. So, uh, and at the same time, then, showing at what a grip on the uh, carbon-emitting nations, the uh, transnational fossil fuel companies have, there was uh, a fascinating uh, article just the other day in Adbusters where uh, a fellow named Richard Smith talks, the title is Sleepwalking to Extinction, Capitalism and the Destruction of Life and on Earth. And that he points out that we can't get make any real dent, real slowdown, what we desperately need uh, in the face of the power and both obstruction and power by the uh, oil and gas companies particularly. And, of course, coal, which is growing new plant every week in China. And so there's, it's a fascinating uh, article with a lot of data in it so that he's not just talking through his hat, 
But then he ends that with saying these giant corporations are wiping out life on earth in the course of a routine business day. So uh, I look at, uh, one can look at uh, this political economy we're in and looking at what would, what would the uh, Buddha say about it. Uh, he didn't uh, talk about capitalism, did he? But he did talk about private property. And capitalism is built on the principle of private property. That the principle that certain humans can own the earth for the purpose of exploiting it for profit. So when you look at what uh, I'm tempted then, and this is what I want to do with you, invite you to reflect. You may have been thinking a lot about it yourself, and you may not agree with me at all, but I just toss out what you can find uh, in the teachings of the Buddha going way back and where my my scholarship in Buddhism is from the early uh Pali Canon, where our insight meditation practice comes from. Well, I'd like to say that uh, you know how important the notion in, in Buddhist teachings is of there not being a separate, permanent self. And that's called the Anatta uh, Doctrine. When you really look at it, the Buddha didn't say there wasn't a self. He just said he wasn't sure there was and you couldn't find one and he'd never seen one and never experienced one. And uh, so he just was, uh, that became, and when you, within the insight uh, and I practice itself, within Vipassana, uh, it is so ex- an exquisite part of the praxis itself that as you attend to the uh, what is happening in your experience, moment by moment, second by second, you see a stream of psychophysical events. And there are thoughts and there are sensations and their memories, and but as you become more and more aware, it can slow down enough to see this stream of consciousness. Nowhere there can you seem to locate a personal self, a, an abiding self, the one who is experiencing it. You can see experience, but not an I or a self who is doing the experiencing. You can see the stream of these events, thoughts, feelings, but you can't see anybody sort of on the banks of the stream watching it. So I find that as a practice, a vipassana is very linked to this notion of, uh, and of, 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 uh, 
and a liberating, a truly liberating it in my own practice, in my own life story, uh, the liberation that comes that uh, there is not a self, there's that you that a permanent one, a Joanna that I have to fix or improve or mortify or punish or save. Or enlighten or anything. It's because there, it's not, it's just a stream of experience and that what I choose and what I experience shapes that. Certainly, I as Joanna exist, but it's, she's changing. And that Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha are, are so exquisitely revealing to help for us to see it's how in that changing that we can uh, grow in our capacity to understand, in our capacity to respond to need, in our capacity to uh, understand clear comprehension, in our capacity to feel loving kindness. All of these can grow because these are factors that we can encourage in our stream of being. But you know what? Even before the Buddha talks about there being no permanent separate self, he talks about mamata, which means mindness. He says, watch out. Even before he says, watch out for thinking you have a permanent self, he says, watch out for the thought that they're in thought or feeling that something can be mine, that something can be yours. That notion of possession, that you can own something, he says, is a, a produces great suffering and is an illusion. Even more than thinking of the self. And so when he makes calls together his troop of wonderful disciples and co-journeyers on the path, all those who gathered around him during his 40 years of teaching, and he created a community, a model community that he called the Sangha, uh, you can see that he put that notion of a right to work because there's no private property in the Sangha. And there was uh, equality in the Sangha. It was open to everybody. And it was self-governing. Its decisions were uh, to be taken, uh, what they call, in concert, in consortium, Everybody sat together uh, to make the choices, to decide whether they were where they were going to settle, to decide uh, whether they were going to how they were going to keep their numbers. It was self-governance. So this has been fascinating to me over the years in my own reading of the um, of the early teachings. 
What I want to focus on, though, I want to go back to this private property to a story that he told, which illustrates in a, a humorous way, because it was slightly humorous as he told it. It was a kind of tongue-in-cheek Genesis story. If you're looking for a story of how things began, how the world started uh, in Buddhism, you'd find this. It was called the Aganya Sutta, and it was in the Diga Nikaya. And um, I'm going to tell it to you. Um, and I brought the scriptures here. And like many stories, there is, uh, it's extremely tedious to read, so I will not try to read it to you. And I think that that is, I've gathered that that is largely because these were committed to memory. You know that these discourses of the Lord Buddha were uh, remembered for three centuries before they were written down. And so to keep the mnemonics to help people uh, learn them by heart from generation to generation, there was um, a lot of repetition, a little bit like nursery limes, that there's the house that Jack built, and da-da-da, you repeat, repeat, repeat in order to bring in new. But for, for if you sit down for a quick read in our <laughs> tempo of our culture, it's uh, challenging. So I'm going to tell it to you. And uh, if you want to look at it later, I have the scriptures right here so that you can see I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, and so uh, now I, I said it was humorous, uh, tongue-in-cheek, because the Buddha in his teachings said that you cannot, uh, there's certain things that you can't know and that are uh, pointless to discuss because they're outside our experience. One is whether there's a God or not. And another is the whether uh, you, there's life after death, whether an enlightened arahat uh, gets reborn. He said, you can't tell that. But out of your experience, he was very empirical. And another one, he says, you can't talk seriously or debate about uh, the beginning of things because it's not an, in an empirically verifiable uh, understanding. So the fact that he would begin to talk about once upon a time, there was nothing at all, and then a world came into being, you could know that he was sort of having a twinkle in his eye. And the very reason that he told the story was because there was a conversation going on with some Brahmin from monks, bhikkhus, uh, in his sangha, in his, among his followers, that were from the Brahmin caste. And the Brahmin caste was the uh, most pure, highest caste in uh, Indian society. As you know, there was the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas and the Suttas. There were these castes, and they were 
they were clearly considered one superior and purer than the other. And the fact that the Buddha opened his sangha to people from all castes, even to outcast people, even to runaway soldiers and runaway slaves, uh, made people uh, talk about, uh, quite offended. And so the, some of his uh, people from the Brahmin caste say, boy, when we go back to our families and we hear what's said about us, uh, they people are uh, finding us, are, are uh, reviling us and uh, casting dirt and dust upon us and, uh, and saying terrible things about us uh, because we have joined your sangha which allows people in that are from menial, dark-skinned people too because the Brahmins have paler complexion and uh, that we hang out with people who are uh, of uh, water carriers, leather workers, escaped slaves, etc. Now, in Indian lore at that time, the castes were understood actually from the sacred texts of the Vedanta of Hinduism that they came from the different parts of the body of the great divine being, the Mahapurusha, from whom the world was made. And from the head came the Brahmins, from the arms came the warrior class, the Kshatriyas, from the loins came the tradespeople, from the feet came the uh, workers of the soil, etc. So this was a sort of like our notion of the divine right. This was a, a organization of society that was divinely and permanently put in place from the beginning of time. Well, Gautama the Buddha didn't buy into this. There were many things about the Vedantic Hinduism of his time that he didn't buy into. And so uh, he, they said, but they tell us that the Brahmins were came from the head and were... Be-. And he said, you want to know about the beginning of things? I'll tell you a story about the beginning of things. So that was... But the people who knew him and his teachings well knew that he was joking because he had made it clear you can't know the beginning of things. Now, having taken too long telling you that, I will now now proceed to uh, tell you the story. And um, I think I've got it pretty much in my head. So at the beginning of things, he said, uh, all was just dark and undifferentiated. And all the beings were luminous and floating around, luminous and weightless and uh, indistinguishable, totally same one to the other. And they were 
little bits of light sort of wafting about over a dark and undifferentiated expanse. Then, gradually, a kind of scum appeared on the waters below them, sort of like a skin coming over milk as you heat it, sort of this kind. And uh, the beings got curious about it. And they looked at this uh Scum is the word they do, and they, uh, but it, it began to glow a little bit, and they reached down and they tasted it. Mmm, it was delicious. Oh, they said, it what a wonderful savor it had, like honey. And it was so good that more and more of them began to taste this, and. Uh, as the more they took of it, the more they wanted it. And the more they ate of it, they began to become, things began to differentiate. The the uh, surface the, uh, uh, below them began to be more earth-like and solid. They began to look more differentiated themselves. They began to lose their luminosity to heavenly objects that appeared. And there was a moon and sun and stars. And the more they ate, they began to look different from each other. And then they began to notice each other and compare. She looks better than her. I look better than her. And sort of there was some discrimination arising and uh, from this comparing. That reminds me of my friend Wes Nisker, who told me, well, helped me so much. He said, on the way to becoming a, a, a Buddha, according to the scriptures, one of the last imperfections that, that, you, that, that clings to the end is comparing mind the temptation to make comparisons, which always can get you into trouble. <laughs> and especially when it's reflecting on yourself. So this arose. Well, as that happened, um, the uh, delicious substance they were eating disappeared. And they bemoaned it. Oh, the savor of it. Oh, wasn't it delicious, but where did it go? And uh, all of this is in the sutra, if you think I'm making this up. <laughs> it's all there, how they would, how they would uh, cry. Ah, the savor of it. And uh, so then uh, something else appeared. And out of this, as the land grew more solid, there were mushroom-like growths on it. And this intrigued the beings, who were all looking more different now, and they began eating uh, these mushrooms. They were so good. And they were just, it was just out of this world delicious. And so they kept on. And uh, then, uh, as they did, uh, they uh, became so differentiated. Some were quite gorgeous, some 
were pretty homely and there were so different that there were males and females. Well, that happened. Whoa, lust arose, you know. And you know what early Buddhism thinks about that. And uh, so they, so pretty soon, that delicious, that went away. And what came after that was uh, vines and creepers. The land was getting more solid now, so green things were growing. But they were equally delicious when the beings ate of them. They were getting heavier. <laughs> With all this, they were. <laughs> and they were walking around. And um, so when they became all the more uh, um, discriminating of each other and passing judgments on each other and getting cliques and clubbiness among themselves, uh, when that happened... All the, the, those vines and creeping vines and greenery went right away. But now in its place grew, uh, after a while, grew rice. Now you have real land and you have real soil and you have ex- delicious rice growing. And this rice grew without any husk or kernel so that you could didn't have to work to eat it. And what you took uh, grew right away again. What you took in the morning would grow right up in the afternoon and the evening. So it was just all you wanted forever and ever. So that uh, that would seem, you think every that would be a pretty hunky-dory situation. But then what happened was that uh, one being, they said a kind of lazy one, said, oh, you know, I don't want to have to get up and go out and take the rice for every meal. Why don't I just take for two meals, my meal for breakfast and my meal for supper. I'll just take it and then I won't have to get up again to go out and take the rice for supper. And so that began to spread. And so others thought, well, that's an idea. And they began to go and harvest the rice for uh, two days at a time. And then more and more people, two days for four days at a time. Well, when that happened, when hoarding began, they... um, the whole situation changed and the rice began to, didn't grow again. It stood as stubble. They had to wait and grow it themselves by the sweat of their brow and they had to uh, winnow it. And it had, it had seed, uh, husks that they had to take out. Well, this meant sort of there was scarcity So at this point, something very determinative happened. And they said, well, I may not have enough, so I am going to build a wall. I'm going to fence this off. This is mine. And they said, okay, 
and people began to build fences and walls to delineate their property. And uh, when they did that, then the next step, and the Buddha laid it out, he said, one guy went over the wall and took some of his neighbor's rice. And when he was told not to do that, he said, I didn't do it, it wasn't me, it was him. And then when they told him, both of them, don't do it again, they went over. And so finally, there was thieving arose, lying arose, scolding arose, admonishments arose, and then violence, beating them up so that you wouldn't take the rice from the neighboring plot. And this, said the Buddha, all arose because they thought they could own their plot. It came with private property. Theft, violence, lying, stealing. It was theft. What what else was it? It was four things. Theft, help me. Theft, lying, violence. It'll come. At any rate, Oh, and admonishment, scolding. So then they got together and they said, the people, the beings, uh, this was an important part in the human history that he was inventing on the spot, apparently, uh, that um, they would elect one of their number to give punishment when it was needed and admonishment when it was needed to keep order because it was getting so and and people they would elect they would elect their own they called him the maha samata the great elected one everybody could vote and he would or she but i think it was a he um, could would keep order and so he said that in that way did uh uh an organized uh, society come into order. And then he proceeded to explain how that led to a division of labor that characterized what came to be called castes. And he said the caste did not come from a divine decree. It did not come from the some great sacred body, the parts of the body. It came out of the activity between people according to the dharma of paticca samuppada, of dependent co-arising, the dharma of reciprocal relations, which was the central teaching, that interdependence, uh, central doctrine of the Buddha. And he said, this is how they arose, not by some decree. So that's interesting in its own. Uh, but what I, what caught my attention then when I read this 40 years ago, and now when I tell, I think it's the first time I've ever tried to tell a group of people about it. I've written about it. It's in a couple of my books. Um, this one, 
which is my scholarly book, has the, has the longer, but I've done it in my chattier books as well. And um, is what that, that, that what teacher, what spiritual teacher has actually taken that human social suffering, uh, traced it back to to uh, private property like this. So it seems to me that, um, why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because we are in a desperate situation for all life on earth. The people who are reading the last uh, report of the IPCC from the UN, the latest reports from the scientists, are really scared out of their minds. It looks very bleak. And if we can't make an enforceable agreement, this will fail just as Copenhagen did two years ago, just as the conference in Doha did last year. But now it's failing at a point where we may be hitting the skids and the young people and the civil society people in Warsaw today that walked out of the great stadium where this is meeting. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yes. See, I think that that was... Uh, invisible beings emphasizing what I was saying. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah. So you try and stop uh, the greenhouse gas emissions that are belching out uh, in such an accelerating way uh, and without and with the fossil fuel companies uh, still holding on to their subsidies and their private property. It's, it's, you know, it's asking us, just as that uh, article in Adbusters that I, by a guy, his name is Richard Smith. It's very interesting. You can find it on, online under Common Dreams. That's where I was hanging out today, thinking about coming here. Uh, we are asked to face our mortality as a species we're asked to face uh, a, the demise of our brother-sister species and of our plant as a planet as a home for conscious life. And we're asked to look at our habits of thinking we can own things. It can come right back down to that. And if we think, well, that is just too basic, that's too much to ask of us, well, maybe we're at a time when there's so much at stake. And, you know, there's more and more talk about the gift economy. And there's some wonderful creative thinking about it. And sacred economics and the urban farm where I now do a lot of my hang out a lot in East Oakland and do my teaching and workshops. They've got on gift economy to a large extent. People are beginning to see that 
we can reinvent what it is to be uh, relate to each other as humans. May we have the uh, moral imagination and love for life uh, to begin to reinvent together. So my uh, chime just then is... is indicating an, an opening of the evening for the next uh, 10 minutes for any comments uh, you might want to make or questions. So what happened at the conference when people walked out? What? What happened at the what conference ha- it, today? We'll, we'll when find out. out. That that happened today. Uh, so, did they call off the session or it just kept going? Well, well, it was not the official government delegates, but it was the what we call civil society, the non-governmental organizations, uh, the likes of us working for the planet that walked out. And there's some pictures of it. So that'll be very interesting. But it shows how desperate and and desperate, but maybe determined, fierce. Maybe it's time for this kind of. Do you have any suggestions for how... Aim it like this, like your baby bottle, yeah. Do you have any suggestions for how to talk to people about this overwhelming crisis without making people shut down, run away, you know, unfriend me on Facebook? Um. I think we assume that there's caring because now, um, even though what's hard is that uh, in our country, that's not true, I don't think it's nearly as much in in, uh, Europe, but there is the mass media carries very little about it. There was none of this in the New York Times today. And when I looked through all the main features of the New York Times, I get it online. Today and every day this week, there was nothing listed on, on the world. Of the, now, it might have been on a back page. I was just looking there online. So, uh, you know, people are not going to be persuaded uh, by an argument we make. But they can, uh, and we could... Uh,
if people think we're, going to, we're trying to persuade them, there, there is resistance immediately rises, uh, is my experience. So, uh, but to just ask, so there are two strategies that I find that the openings then, to, to simply state how you feel. And just to say, you know, I've just been reading about what's going on or I've been hearing about this and I'm worried sick. How do you, how do you deal with this? You know, I, I, there, there, these reports and so forth uh, it makes me sad. So nobody, that's a feeling. Nobody can t- contradict you. That's a fact. You're feeling I'm feeling worried. I'm thinking about my grandchildren. And then uh, that might be enough. Or you could say, how is it with you? How do you handle it? With genuine curiosity, people can smell a mile off if you're trying to change them. Don't you think? I'm just wondering if you have any uh, recommendations about local groups or organizations that we could join, that we could do some of this work. Well, I'd like to draw from uh, suggestions here, too. I've been very impressed by uh, 350.org. And uh, I know that some of the churches are getting like, uh, there's this whole series coming up, uh, Presbyterian Church and, and Marin, and so there's more and more. Um, there's a, a, an appeal coming from uh, Vipassana movement practitioners uh, the world over, starting in England, asking the teachers to give teachings on climate change. And in response... Um, there are some, uh, you go to a website like One Earth Sangha. One Earth Sangha. Mm-hmm. And um, so that has, uh, that's a great source of, of, of guidance. And um, all right, come on, Lockley. Who knows? Come on. Do you really not know? Then you, that's, this is wonderful. You have found out you don't know. What a great place to start. Then you don't want to stay in ignorance. So you go out and find. What? But they exist. Yeah. But that takes an effort. That takes an effort, you know. But the, this socially responsible investing, there are various 
organizations and, comp- uh, and, and investment companies that focus on that. So you'd Google socially responsible investing. You can do that. Now, I have a nest egg, and I have uh, people help investing it for me, and I just tell them, no nuclear, no fossil fuel, you name it. You need to, you, yeah. And divestment, get, joining in the uh, program to to uh, get organizations, uh, universities, colleges, uh, as alumni, uh, uh, to work for divestment. Students are doing this, and alumni can do it too, for divestment out of fossil fuel companies. Okay, excuse me. Um, I think it's it's important to uh, recognize the difficulty of the international community coming to any agreement, period. And when you look at the World Trade Organization and the failure of the Doha rounds and the, the really the rise of protectionism in the last decade, um, it's very difficult to imagine our world, our countries, that couldn't even agree on farm subsidies, milk issues, very important issues that are everyday life issues to come to an agreement about climate change and for countries who are producing gases to take responsibility for that and the, and the countries that are being affected to kind of be compensated for it. I think the way that the international system works is incredibly complicated and it's a big illusion to expect that an agreement is going to come from that kind of bodies. And I think the other thing to recognize is the power of the multinational corporations. They are incredibly powerful. And they're more powerful than the state. And I think the only way to begin to have some traction is to build a civil society. And to do what? To build a civil society. Yeah. That's the other voice. Well, one suggestion, are you finished what you're saying? Is that, and, and I know people working, uh, getting on this is a mass gathering, uh, in Washington to bring, I mean, just really big, bigger than anything so far, to, uh, bring, kind of, we gotta stop the subsidies. We've gotta, st- you know, there's, we're so, uh, so we can sit on our, and be moaning or we can show up. So that this was, you have to sort of be ready to bring your life to a screaming halt in other respects. And there are some success stories around the world, around the carbon credit movement. Uh, you know, there is a lot going on right now in um, indigenous societies that have a, a completely rejected any kind of a carbon credit deal uh, with multinational corporations. So we're seeing native indigenous communities who are not very highly educated, very poor, they understand what this is about. And they act with an incredible amount of force against multinational corporations. And there is success in the Amazon right now in, in Latin America, just from the grassroots, from indigenous people. And, of course, the multinational corporations through the governments of those countries are putting up a big fight. So there are some success stories that we can learn from, too. Right. And there are efforts like 
to counter the use of this red REDD, where it's you um, uh, can invent, well, it's like carbon credits, and their pressure on Governor Brown to uh, stop using that in California. There's a lot that can be done. Hi. Um, you know, I'm so struck by what you're talking about in terms of grassroots because it's really hard. There's so much evidence of the de- devastating effect of climate change. You know, we have Hurricane Sandy. We have just all the tornadoes that just went through the Midwest, incredible destruction. The Philippines. And it's really, you know, it's, it has to start on a very grassroots level. And I'm seeing, you know, I can imagine that those families that experienced the tornado in the Midwest and all the destruction are going to be standing up at some point and saying this is enough. Because they've got, they don't have any choice but to make the connection. Because the devastation keeps coming one you know, episode after another. And so I, I just imagine, you know, maybe I'm being idealistic, but the sense of some sort of uprising, not just in D.C., but in the countries, in the communities that are devastated by the effects of climate change. So, you know, you know, I don't know enough about what's going on in these in local communities, but I think that's where it's really going to make a difference. Good, and I think that might be, we've reached our closing time, and I think that that is a good note to end on, that we, um, and I've gotten very interested in the experience of and concept and experience of sort of peer support in social change. It's really too big and too scary uh, and too immense the response that needs to be made to look at it by yourself. If I just try to look at it by myself, it's just far too overwhelming. But just with one other person or a small group to sit down together and say, let's find right here in the East Bay, where do we see work on climate that speaks to our heart and mind? You look here, you look there, I'll look there and see. And then we report back together and see what seems to be uh, big enough in scope where it's not just some futile effort. So I'd like to close with, with uh, remembering that uh, the Buddha said, uh, when we go forth, we go forth together. We go forth for the welfare for all beings, for the happiness of all beings. And that's the future ones as well. And he said, you do it as a sangha. Maybe this sangha, you decide to have a group that will meet and report back. Why not? Why not have a, put a, a, a paper out at the table and say, who wants to meet so we can report back in two weeks after Thanksgiving with ideas of what we at this Sangha can do. I have a piece of paper. No, I don't. 
I bet there's a piece of paper. Who has a piece of paper? There's a piece of paper. Let's put it out on that table and say, who wants, and put your name and your phone number or your uh, email. And even if there are two people, go ahead. But maybe there'll be more. So now, as this the uh, time for our closing comes, let us share the merit of this. Because everything that has come up is, indicates our sense of belonging to this sacred living planet. Everything that we have questioned and said, betrays, shows our caring for life. Our feelings of responsibility for it. So this has been a, a beautiful moment for us. And we take the merit of that and we share it with all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings find ways to serve life and each other. May all beings be free. You want to put the paper out? Now let her go right to the back before anybody leaves. <laughs>